good to see uh, your smiling faces this morning. Let me be the first to wish you a happy new year. Okay. <laughs> With the advent of technology, I'm probably the, in, in the, the hundreds of, of the people you've already heard from who have wished you a, a happy new year. Um, but it is a new year, and it's a cool time uh, both to reflect and to look forward. So first of all, I want to thank you, and partly just for your attendance here. I know it was a, a pretty... Um, significant sacrifice because if you know anything about our current cultural events going on, there's something going on in about one minute in Pottstown at the Schuylkill called the polar bear plunge. Um, and I'm sure there was a temptation for some of you, like me, through Pottstown to just pull off and be like, I mean, I have another 51 weeks to go to church, but the plunge, I mean, that only happens once a year. This, this, is, this is an annual event. And I was just amazed at how hyped up they're actually getting for this. And they, they have all kinds of pallets they stack up to do a big bonfire. And they sell hot dogs. And, and one of the new Mercury reporters, he's like the newbie, he got sort of tricked or talked into uh, that this is a rite of passage, that he needs to take the plunge with people. So he has a little, he has a little blurb on there asking people to like give him advice and uh, all these sorts of things. So... Um, However tempted you were to participate in that, thank you for coming and celebrating with us and, uh, and being together with the people of God. Um, you know, as we, part of the things, part, some of the things we do is we reflect and then we resolve um, to do other things in the new year. So I wanted to start off with one reflection. It's sort of a continued joke um, with me and my experience here at PFC. And there's someone who, who tends to give me um, grief on on my wearing of black. And, uh, you know, so as we, as we got into the Christmas season and as I was talk, leading the choir, it was like, you're not going to make us wear black, are you? Black's so dull. Black represents death or, you know, the color black. Whatever, whatever you think black is to you, you know, most people don't like it as much as I do. So we had these discussions. And then through the year, I've had someone who sort of, whenever I don't wear black, n- notes the fact that I haven't. And, and appreciates it, um, you know, and so sometimes that wants me, makes me want to wear it more, and then sometimes, you know, I just roll with it, but uh, I was trying to think of how I could make allusion to this without outing the person, and then make, maybe do it in, you know, veiled way, or something that rhymes with Shelby bite work, but I couldn't really, I couldn't really think of anything, and it's sort of tradition when, when they're gone, whenever Tim's gone, Josh takes a shot. Vice, vice versa, you know, a little bit of something to give them a reason to listen when they come back. Um, so Shelby's not here, and she likes to give me grief on this regard. And it's fine. I can take it, because if you know me, I give her a little bit of grief here and there occasionally. Um, but so it was just sort of ironic to me that last week I thought, you know what, how can I be a blessing you know, to Shelby? How can I go out of my way to try to be a blessing? The easiest and in some ways hardest thing I could do is just to wear something different. So I was going to sing with her last week. We did sing together. I pull out my red sweater, you know, resisting the entire trend to think that red means happy and Christmas and, and all these other things. And I'm like, I'm going to do this for Shelby just to make her happy, just to be a nice guy. Because <laughs> there's some question about that. And I was like, no, this is very clear. I'm a nice guy. I'll do this for her. <laughs> so I put my red sweater on. Lindsay looks at me and is like, wow, I haven't seen that one like since we dated, or <laughs> I don't know. And I said, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but it's for Shelby. 
<laughs> you know, and, I mean, so let me explain that to you. Anyhow, so I get here, and, and Shelby walks to the back, and I'm waiting, you know, to just wait for the reaction of how nice I look or different I look. And she walks in, in what? Black and gray. So all bets are off. Shelby, if you ever hear this, no more. I will not. Uh, so this morning, and then I just figured this morning, like, you don't actually want to start the year in red. You want to start the year in a black for you financial people. So there's my justification for this morning. So um, that's, that's one humorous reflection I've had, you know, um, at Shelby's expense. And I wanted to share that with you. And then, of course, coming to the making of resolutions. How many of you have already made resolutions? Okay, not many. Some people, I think, wake up and then go, oh, it's today. And theoretically, I'm supposed to have them done. So you already failed one of your resolutions. <laughs> and now, how many of you have already failed one of your resolutions and you know? Okay, thank you for that hand. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe there's another one. Yes, yes, any more? <laughs> so there's, there's, you know, some of you, it might have been to, like, get up and eat a well-balanced breakfast on Sundays instead of rushing to church. Probably no, none of you have that problem. So, so we make and in some cases fail our resolutions before we even uh, have a chance to write them down and solidify them. I'm, I'm sure some of you too, and I, this is not a resolution bash. I mean, honestly, if that helps you and it works for you, I'm completely fine with it. Um, I know, you know, parties on both sides, people who resolve never to make resolutions, the irony, the beauty of that. Uh, but you know, I think a lot of people like to make sort of funny resolutions just to keep it, keep it real. And I saw one of my friends posted something and said, here's my great dilemma is I'm trying to decide whether or not I, I make resolutions that will be easy for me to keep, so no challenge involved, or fun for me to break. <laughs> you know? So, again, wherever you're at on that continuum, um, I, have, I have one little one that came up to me this past year where I missed one of my envelopes for the offering one week. And I'm like on the mild end of the spectrum for OCD in a, in a few little places. And that might be one of them organizationally where I was you know, throwing something together, missed my envelope, you know, the world fell apart, my worldview was destroyed. You know, like how do I proceed from here? I got all these weeks in, I have 51 weeks of envelopes, you know. Maybe that was one of your resolutions today. So this morning, you know, I come up here and I thought about leaving it in my, you know, pocket as a, as a stunt or a prank. But I got it in here in the offering plate, you know, before anybody else was even here. Whew. Okay, it's only 25 more weeks to go. <laughs> and you might be on the even week or the odd week. I don't know how you give. And some of you go, no, I solved that problem by not using envelopes. So I got you beat. But, uh, you know, I had, I had one of those thoughts. And, of course, I'm not going to actually make a resolution because that would be foolish to actually obsess about something like that. But, um, you know, I want to talk about one of the resolutions that Jesus had this morning and, and some of the benefits we derive from Jesus' probably his chief resolution in all of Scripture. And it's sort of a theological one. He, he makes the statement several times and in many different places, and it's this, that Jesus was resolved to do the Father's will. At every turn in Jesus' ministry... Even as a young boy, right, even as a boy of 12 who goes back and his parents come and say, what are you doing? It's like, what else am I doing? I'm doing the only thing I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm being about my father's business. And through his life and ministry, Jesus always comes back to that. 
He's always stealing away and trying to get time with God from the rest of things to recenter and to make sure that he is fully submitted and devoted to the Father's will. This is Jesus' great theme of his life, that he has come to do the Father's will. So there are many blessings that proceed from that commitment. Um, and it would be easy to preach on one or more of them. I just sort of want to center on one this morning. And it's the blessing that he brings to us uh, in himself in contrast to something we live under that we know of as the curse. I want to note um, the context for you know, this sermon and, and the thoughts I had around it proceed from uh, one of our favorite, I'm sure it's one of your favorites, one of mine, and, and sort of uh, universally a favorite hymn or carol. And the words read as follows. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. You know, saying this is, this is as good as it gets. You should write songs about this. That's how excited you should be. While fields and flocks, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So I'm sure you've sung that at some point and you've heard it probably on the radio and on your CDs and um, at different times. And, all right, so, so one of the other things that comes with the holidays is a non-traditional, fairly recent uh, cultural um, celebration that some people observe called, you know, Festivus, right? I don't know if I want to raise your yeah, hands. I think some of you probably observe it. So Festivus, all right? And it begins with what? Don't pretend like you don't know. See, George Ann celebrates it. <laughs> the airing of grievances. All right? And, it, and it's traditionally, I guess, done on the 23rd. Uh, you know, it's only been around for 10 or 15 years. And we won't go into it too deeply, but I have a little bit of a grievance on the, um, on the music side, right? So in a form, well, I'm a bit of a music guy and did some training in that area. And this is something that has always bothered me about joy to the world and about hymnals in general. So this is not a bash on our hymnal. Lots of hymnals do this. They, they, they oftentimes will note the verses they think you should sing. And half the time, of course, we, we pick and choose. We don't have time to do all of them, maybe in every case. Um, and I, I heard Joy to the World sung by one of my favorite groups this year. And I was thinking, these guys will get it right. Um, they're very theologically driven. They're motivated. And they, they left out this verse. And I didn't write a letter or anything, but I noted it. I mean, like, it was, it was my grievance. It was like time to note this. And I want to note that in our hymnal too, 1, 2, and 4 are highlighted. And we can easily skip over 3, which reads as follows. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Now, I don't know about you, but... That's a linchpin in that song. In the theology of that song, in what it represents, 
Let me just challenge you. So here's, let me make a resolution for you. I'm sure most of you will reject it because that's just, we don't like people to do that for us. But let me just encourage you, don't ever skip verse 3 of joy to the world again. You know, in your life, in your celebrations. Because actually, it's not just inconsequential. You're missing a huge piece of theology that comes from that uh, stanza. And that's sort of what I want to talk about this morning, is how the blessing that comes from Christ's submission to the will of the Father flows out to the world as far as the, earth, uh, as the curse is found. And you say, you know, what curse are you talking about? And for those of us who grew up in church, we understand that. And if you're, um, if you're not as familiar with that, the Bible says that we are living under a curse. And Genesis 3 highlights the interchange where that curse took place, Adam and Eve in the fall, and, and more, more accurately, the rebellion in the garden. This is part of the reason it's a curse. It's not just a misstep. It's intentional rebellion against God. And in verse 14, God addresses the parties. He says to the serpent, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now that's not unfamiliar for those of us who, you know, who have been around uh, the Bible all of our lives. We understand, okay? Something bad happened in the garden, and it has ramifications for us. You know, but sometimes it's good for us to explore those ramifications uh, a little bit and to really sit and ponder and think which we don't have a great deal of time to do this morning. Um, but I want to I really focus on the good side of that. We understand the curse a little bit, and we sort of feel it in our bones. I mean, the Bible tells us we're, even, we're, we're born with sin in us. Sin in, envelops, us, envelops us, it pervades us. Uh, in, in church history, uh, uh, the doctrine of sin, uh, one of the ways they've described it, um, those who I think are more, most orthodox, has to do with total depravity or radical depravity that says that it does not mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. And it's, it's a big moment of despair. It does mean that sin affects us at every level of our existence. It, it, it affects us in our relationships. It affects us in our minds, in our own person. It affects the world around us. And um, so to pick three points intersections in which it affects us this morning, I just want to note that it affects us personally, on the, and, and, and included in that is our family level. It affects the community where we live, and it affects the world. There's global effects of this curse, uh, and, and there's certainly some that are highlighted in the text. I mean, that the ground, it's actually, it's going to be a hard thing to make food and produce and to work, and I mean, who knows what childbearing was, was like or would have been like or 
you know, the intent behind it. The idea is that it would not have been as bad as it is now. Um, and, and all the ramifications of that. Loss of children, miscarriage, death, stillborn. All the, the ravaging effects of sin, which doesn't mean that people are, of course, being punished for their sin in that moment, but that sin has these sorts of effects that are far-reaching in our lives. We live under this curse. In our family, it affects us by way of betrayals, broken trusts and confidences, pride and selfishness. I wonder, probably no one made this resolution this morning or uh, whenever you make them. Probably no one wrote, I resolve to live in perfect harmony with my spouse the next 365 days of the year. I resolve to be a perfect husband, to always consider my wife above my needs, or to be the perfect wife, and whatever that entails. I wouldn't know. So I wouldn't know what a perfect husband entails either. Let's be clear about that. Um, So why do we not make resolutions like that? Why why don't we make resolutions by that? Give me some feedback. (laughs) Because they're dumb, right? We go, why would I make a resolution that I know I can't keep? And the reason we know we can't keep them is because we do have this sense that we're sinful people and we mess up. And while it might be good to hope for these things, to, to make some sort of hard and fast line is just to set ourselves up for failure because we know it's going to happen. You know? There, there's days, and you know this as if, you, if you're parents or you know this if you reflect back on your childhood. Sometimes life is just great with mom and dad and the kids, and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. And I want to be a great father, but it doesn't do me any good to resolve that I will always be everything I should be to my kids 365 days of the year because I know that I won't. So we, don't, we tend not to make those resolutions because we have a profound sense that we live in a certain reality. And that reality is the curse. And it plays out on all these levels. It plays out in our community where there is crime, you know, in all sorts of forms. There's broken promises. How many of you would like, you know, politicians to resolve to tell the truth? Okay? Now the problem is that if, we, if, if, if there was a way we could hold them to that standard, we would have to be held to it ourselves. And truth be told, ironically, we're not radically truthful people. It's, it's hard for us to tell the truth and to, to be honest at times. There's abuse in many forms. There's idolatry. You know, that we see in the community. And again, there's transfer in all of these categories because, of course, we have idolatry in our own lives as well. And this curse affects us globally. You know, we're, we're just beginning to now celebrate the end of this war. And no matter what you think of that politically, whether we should have gone or not, who cares? The, the point is war exists. It's existed ever since man has had trouble with people, themselves, each other. War exists everywhere, and at all times there's a war somewhere, which means that we, we can't have peace, it feels. 
There's famine. There's disease. There's starvation. There are people who lack for the things they need for everyday basic existence. And there's ways to, to combat that at times, and sometimes they feel futile. And there's ways for us to engage and step in and say, that's something I see and I want to help work toward the undoing of it, and we ought to and we should. But the thing we ought to hope for and rejoice in most is that the good news that comes to us is that though we live under a curse, there was an original Adam, and he screwed up royally. He messed things up really bad for us, right? And it'd be, it'd be easy for us to sort of be upset with him. I, I know people who go, I don't think it's fair that God judges me, like that I'm held accountable, accountable for Adam's sin. And we learn other places in Scripture that we sinned with Adam and in Adam, and we sin, of course, all the time, and we are born into sin, so we don't really have to make the, you know, put everything on Adam. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, I don't want to be represented by anyone. Because I think I could have done better than Adam. Let's just, like, let's just clear that up real quick. Um, <laughs> Adam was in the garden in a, in a beautiful, as close to perfect you know, place that God made for him. God dwelt with him. He came in the cool of the afternoon and evening and fellowshiped with them. Uh, he doesn't, it's not that he is not with us, but he does not do exactly with us what he did with Adam. And if anybody could have done right, it was Adam. So I just want to let Adam off the hook in that little way when, when we sort of get defensive and go, well, maybe, maybe I could have done better. And frankly, we want to have representatives. If it doesn't feel fair on the Adam side, hang on to it real quick because you're going to want to buy into that system when you find out the good news, which is that there's a second Adam. And his name is Jesus. And he comes to make right what the first Adam did wrong. And you don't get to stand and have Jesus as your representative unless you're willing to have Adam. You know, you don't get to break it down that way as we, as we like to do, right? Rewrite the rules and reshape things and go, I'll take this but not that. As, as painful as it might feel to say, I'm going to identify with Adam here, you have to have it if you ever want to be able to identify with Jesus. Because the Bible teaches us that God gives us representatives. Adam was our one in the flesh, and Jesus, who came in the flesh, is our spiritual representative for all those who will believe and trust in him. And he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the evil goes. So think about like um, a lot of people have struggled with flooding, of course, this year. And when you have an, an assessor come, insurance, they, they don't just say, well, where's the origin of the water? Okay, uh, and if it's upstairs, I'm thinking. They don't just go, okay, it reached over to the corner and over to the refrigerator. Where did it probably go if there's anything below it? It went down. It went other places. It fills in cracks. And so as far as the water goes, as far as the damage goes, the, you know, the repair has to be made. It's that same sort of idea that Jesus comes, and he doesn't just come to give a quick fix and to say, uh, you cannot you know, go to hell and be with Satan, and then you can end up being with me, and that's the best I can do. It's that on all of these intricate levels, on our, in our person, in our families, in our communities, and in the world, Jesus comes to make his blessings flow. Um, part of the idea for this sermon was a book I received a couple years ago 
by Michael Williams called As Far As The Curse Is Found. And there's a little thought in there that says, uh, when Jesus came, when he was a man, he played the man. I mean, he bought into it. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Why? Second Corinthians says, he exchanged his riches for our poverty so that, that we through our poverty could gain his riches. It's not just a quick fix. It's not like, I know some bad stuff happened to you. I'm going to give you one good option. Believe in me, and you get to go there. It's, I'm going to come and heal and restore and work and redeem where Adam, the first Adam, failed. Romans 5 talks about this. It says it talks about the one who is to come, and it describes Adam as being a type, sort of a precursor to the one who is to come. And it talks about how Jesus does all these things better. And Adam sins... Everyone pays for it with death. Jesus, through his righteousness, brings life to all who will believe in him. He undoes these things. Where Adam failed, where Adam rebelled, Jesus resigned his will to the Father. Where Adam bought into a culture of subversion, Jesus promoted submission. Where Adam failed, Jesus flourished. Matthew 4 and the Gospels have this great picture where Jesus is in the desert. And this is, this is directly designed to, to make us think of Adam. So again, if, if you think you could have done better than Adam, I'm not saying you have, but if there's ever that tension in your mind, Adam's in the garden, the best possible place in God's presence, he fails. Jesus, where is he? The desert. All alone, no food or water for 40 days. And what does he do? He succeeds. He obeys where Adam disobeyed. All of our hopes rest in Jesus. And they rest in him in, in many different places. That's one of the profound ones. Where he obeys and does what Adam was supposed to have done. What, Adam, what we wish Adam would have been able to do and he didn't. Jesus did where Adam rejected his responsibility to live in covenant with God, Jesus accepted it. And he accepted it on our behalf, for our good. He came, we, you know, we've talked the last few weeks about all the aspects of Christmas, um, and he did these things, and he did them for us. In the midst of all of this curse, and, and you don't have to use your imaginations, of course, you know the things I'm talking about, and we could spend hours discussing them. There are these sorts of words. There's always glimpses of the blessing in the midst of the curse. So I want to just, I want to bless you with that today as you're moving forward into 2012. As you, as you get into that, that habit of crossing out the 11 on the top of your checks and, and writing 12. And, and, you know, resetting your mind into, all right, new year, uh, things to look forward to. But that doesn't mean, you know, it's all bright and cheery. For some of us, 2011 was a great year. For some of us, it was terrible. And some are hoping, I hope this year is as good as last year. And some are saying, if it's as bad as last year, I give up. Habakkuk 2 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And if you saw an email um, sent out to us from the church, uh, the, the verse from Psalm 65:11 was on there. You crown the year with goodness and your paths drip with abundance. 
And so we're going to, Amy's going to come up and lead us in this song, and we are going to intentionally sing this verse. And I just want to, to call you to rejoice in it, to rejoice in that reality. It, it means different things for us at different places, and, and the applications are, are so many. But rejoice in this fact that Jesus has come to make his blessings flow to you, to your family, to the community, and to the entire world as far as the curse is found. And it's found everywhere. So let's rejoice and uh, sing that together. And then we'll have our benediction.